GS Plumbing Talk Line is 1-800-905-0989. The Common Sense Retirement Planning Text Line is 71307. Streaming live, even though Maria doesn't like it. Streaming live on the uh, WORD Facebook page and Twitter slash X, whichever you call it. If that's your cup of tea. You know, um, sometimes people in a position of authority need somebody around to slap them around from time to time just to bring them back to earth. Um, Alan West said that Donald Trump needed a good old-fashioned command sergeant major as his personal self-discipline enforcer. And that way, all of this, uh, the mean tweets and the rambling at the podium could be easily corrected by somebody keeping him on track. We can't put some, well, I'd, I'd love to do it, but we can't. But we're being told that Donald Trump's presidency was chaotic. Well, why was it chaotic? I mean, the, the current resident, his presidency is absolutely chaotic, but it's not because of anything that anybody's doing from the outside, except for, you know, like, in, you know, investigating his criminal son and all of his other, his own criminal activities. But that's all beside the point. Had nothing to do with a bunch of made up nonsense. And why is it that chaos is a thing now? Now, we know that the left looks at Trump as an authoritarian and a Hitler and all this other stuff. And remember this, whenever they're saying this, what they're doing is whatever they're throwing at you is actually being mirrored back at them because they're projecting what they're doing. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden is the one that said no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. That is quite authoritarian, but that's what Joe Biden has said. But in the interim, Nikki Haley, who's, uh, you know, she's fighting to get the nomination because she thinks that her five-inch heels mean that she could be a good president. She doesn't think we need to return to the chaos of Trump. But when you think about the definition of chaos, which chaos is a noun. It means complete disorder and confusion. Okay? When you think about chaos, what was the first thing Joe Biden did when he came into office? Well, he snatched away the energy independence that we had, which made us the class of the planet. And he created mass chaos in the energy sector. And instead of America producing, consuming, and exporting its very own energy resources, he returned us to being energy slaves, which led to the rise of inflation, which when Biden came into office, it was at 1.4%. It ended up topping out at 9.1%. Even the Federal Reserve decision to raise interest rates has create conf created confusion and chaos. Not everybody's capable of paying 7% interest on a new home, especially when fuel prices and food commodity prices remain really, really high. Another bit of chaos that stems from his energy policies that our own strategic petroleum reserve has dropped down to a 17-day, that's two weeks, three-day supply. We've been selling it to our number one geopolitical foe, China. And along the way, along the way, um, <laughs> we've seen an increase in the chaos in our relationship with China. 
nation now openly threatening Taiwan, whose 90% of semiconductor chips are made. Electric vehicles, nah, not for me, especially when it's China that has cornered that battery market. And I think there's no greater evidence of the chaos produced by the current resident when, unless we look at his national security and foreign policy, like the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You do, you're not supposed to withdraw and lose people on the way out the door. It, when you're withdrawing, it's supposed to be under peaceful circumstances. What do you call it when you're withdrawing and you've got people hanging on to a C-17 as it taxis down the runway and they fall to their deaths as the aircraft takes off? That's chaotic. And that didn't happen during the Trump administration. As a matter of fact, during the Trump administration, ISIS was decimated. The leader, you know, Soleimani, killed in a, in a drone strike. When Trump said the U.S. Embassy would move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the jihadists ranted and raved about blood in the streets. What happened? Nothing. Then Biden comes along, fails to enforce sanctions against Iran, and now we've had a terrorist group, Hamas, conduct a big daytime raid into Israel on October 7th. Now Iran is bankrolling the Houthi rebels of, uh, of Yemen. And, you know, they're firing upon us and anybody else in the Gulf of Aden. Iran is firing missiles into Pakistan. Russia invaded Ukraine. Not during the Trump administration, but under Biden. And that has cost us billions of dollars as we've spent money in all these directions that we were not doing. China now has a larger naval force than the U.S. has as well. Then the Secretary of Defense goes missing for four days and tells no one. Calls an Uber, goes to the hospital, checks in, tell no one. It's almost like out of the Grinch. That's chaotic. But don't, win, don't you know, you shouldn't worry too much about that because we have transgender recruiters in the Navy. We know the right pronouns in the military now. We're doing lots of training on the cultural Marxist topics of victimization, oppression, and inclusion. And in the meantime, nobody wants to sign up and they're not able to retain the ones they got. Right now, according to the Joint Chief of Staff General Charles Q. Brown, we only need 46% white pilots in the Air Force. That's how they're focusing the military now. They're putting a number on it saying that it's not about who's the best pilot, it's about what color they are. And Nick Durbin said we can just recruit illegal immigrants into the military now. And if, is that chaotic? Then we can look at the border under Mayorkas, and, you know, well, that's abysmal. We have the drug, human, and self-trafficking crisis that has never, ever been that way before like it is now. <sighs> that's pretty chaotic. We, uh, you, did you see the report the other day where now you don't, have to ha you don't have to do a, like, swarm on a store? Because of certain things that are happening, like, say, in the Walmarts, where they're doing away with cashiers, now people are just not checking. When they go through the self-checkout line, they're not checking it out. They've got 10 items. They scan two. Off they go. They've got a receipt. Well, I, you know, I ran it through there, and, it did, and it's their word against yours, right, when that happens. And that, that's, that's, uh, that's, this is called shrinkage, by the way. That's what they call shrinkage. It's actually called left. No, not left. It's theft. Left rhymes with theft, doesn't it? The left calls it equity. And then there's a January 6th thing, which they, you know. I don't know. I don't know. 
So where is the chaos? Where where Where's the Trumpian chaos that we're all supposed to be sitting back going, oh, no, not more of that. I can't handle that. It's absurd. If, and, you know, I'd be the first one to tell you that everything went to hell when COVID came along. And it would have really been interesting to see what Nikki Haley would have done under COVID. Because it, it, that's one of the things she's pointing out is chaotic was that whole response. What would she have done that would have been different from what Trump did when nobody knew what COVID was? In January of 2020, right now, this very minute, uh, four years ago, I was sitting on Radio Row at SHOT Show in Vegas, and Mark Walters and I were making fun of COVID. And, uh, of course, I caught COVID that year. I caught COVID there, and uh, I wasn't making fun of it later. But we didn't even know what it was. When I went and got diagnosed, they said it was an unknown strain of the flu. What would these people have done differently? Well, the left, we know what they were going to do because they just wanted to lock us down. So, I always get a kick out of the whole chaos thing. There's some of the chaos I would welcome. I would welcome the energy independence. I would welcome the booming economy. I would welcome a lot of things. I would welcome our foreign policy that we had at the time. I would take that chaos all day long. And remember what I said about there's no perfect, perfect candidate out there today. When we get back, it's interesting that there's some guys, some people in academia that think it would be a smoking hot idea for the human race to go extinct. I'm not making that up. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD. Do you find it as uh, puzzling as I do when human beings postulate to you that we should just not be here? I do. I find that very puzzling. GS Plumbing Talk Line is one 800 The Common Sense Retirement Planning text line is 71307. Now, there was a time... And I saw this. This is based off of an article that actually came out in 2018. So this is back when uh, there was there was a scintilla of thought that maybe climate change might be real. You know, back five years ago, four, six years ago. But since all of that began, and for for whatever reason, uh, there's some people out there that think it's a smoking hot idea to ask the question. Would human extinction be a tragedy? And right out of, uh, there's a guy named Todd May, a, prof a professor of philosophy at Clemson University. He wrote this uh, as an opinion piece for the New York Times. I guess I, that completely understands why they're good with abortion, right? Because if, if they're good with killing babies in the womb, then obviously just all of us just going out in the blink of a light, that'd be fine. He says, I am also not asking whether human beings as a species deserve to die out. That is an important question. And tentatively, he suggests that human extinction would be both a tragedy and that it might just be a good thing. Why would it be a good thing? Uh, well, according to him, human beings are destroying large parts of the inhabitable earth and causing unimaginable suffering to many of the animals that in inhabit it. 
Humanity then is the source of devastation of the lives of conscious animals on a scale that is difficult to comprehend. He does admit, however, you know, I'm, uh, when we start looking at the animals, right? <laughs> animals are quite animalistic to each other. And I'm not just, you know, like predators, like lions, for example. If a lion finds a cub, a lion cub that is not his lion cub, he kills it and he eats it. They're not out there going, well, I have a moral quandary here. Here's a baby, baby, uh, baby lion that is my, my baby. What should I do? Hmm. Sort of, sort of feeling peckish. I'll just eat it. Um, you know, animals, they, they don't have this kind of confusion going on. But he concludes that there's no other creature in nature whose predatory behavior is remotely as deep or as widespread as the behavior we display toward what the philosopher Christine Korsgaard aptly calls our fellow creatures in the sensitive book of the same name. And he said, if this were all to the story, there would be no tragedy. The elimination of the human species would be a good thing, full stop. But then he very gallantly admits, but, there's no, but there is more to the story. Human beings being, bring things to the planet that other animals cannot. For example, we bring an advanced level of reason that can experience wonder at the world in a way that is foreign to most, if not all, other animals. We create art of various kinds, literature, music, and painting among them. We engage in sciences that seek to understand the universe and our place in it. Were our species to go extinct, all of that would be lost. Well, there's that. He notes that there might be those on the more jaded side who would argue that if we went extinct, there would be no loss because there would be no one for whom it would be a loss not to have access to those things. This is one of these, I mean, this is the problem with sometimes with philosophy. Philosophy without any sort of a basis on uh, real life, it can be one of these circular things that just keeps coming back on itself. Well, it could be a good thing if we do this, but then it's a bad thing if we do this. He also says, one could press the objection here by saying that it would be only a loss from a human viewpoint and that that viewpoint would no longer exist if we went extinct. Where, where did this guy get his degree from? That's like saying, if I had never existed, I wouldn't know what it was like to be here. And then he goes on to say, one might ask here whether, given this view, it would also be a good thing for those of us who are currently here to end our lives in order to prevent further animal suffering. Although I do not have a final answer to this question, we should recognize that the case of future humans is very different from the case of currently existing humans. To demand of currently existing humans that they should end their lives would introduce significant suffering among those who have much to lose by dying. In contrast, preventing future humans from existing does not introduce such suffering since those human beings will not exist and therefore not have lives to sacrifice. Now he's having a problem trying to figure out how to do preemptory abortion. This is a preposterous philosophical exercise that we're doing here. This is, this is one of these things where we're playing the what-if game. And we keep, you know, we, we, we jumped from on one side of the tennis net, then we jumped to the other side of the tennis net to re return our lob. And uh, I, you know, I guess, was he getting paid by the word? He 
follows up. It may well be then that the extinction of humanity would make the world better off and yet would be a tragedy. <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I don't want to say this for sure since the issue is quite complex. It may also turn out that it is through our own actions that we human beings bring about our own extinction or at least something near it, contributing through our practices to our own tragic end. Wouldn't that be a good thing? This assertion that we're nothing more than a glorified animal with marginally greater capacity for pondering our place in the cosmos and painting some really nice things, and we don't have to do it on a, on a cave wall. We, we, we have our own canvases that we can buy at, you know, Michael's and Hobby Lobby. Um, and, you know, we're blessed with opposable thumbs that allow us to effectively utilize tools, which means we can live indoors. <laughs> uh, the thing I, I find most interesting, though, is that they go to great lengths to blur the distinction between us and any other animal out there. Man and woman, there's, there, there's no difference between those two. And right and wrong, of course. Those are all, all of those things are just concepts. So then the question becomes, if the total extinction of human beings might be a good thing, what about the partial elimination and extinction of certain groups of people? That's the historic train of thought that socialists and progressives have taken in the past, which gave us eugenics and ethnic cleansing, the final solution, and abortion rights. That is, that is poverty on a moral scale that leads to man pondering eliminating himself that stems from his decision to dispense the notion of a higher power. What is striking is his surmising is the complete lack of a biblical perspective. Never brought up. Too silly a notion for them to even consider. What a laughable white male patriarchal construct. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that crawls upon the earth. Well, if you go out there spouting that kind of stuff, that's not very woke. Then you become an egotistical, misogynistic, non-egalitarian humanist deity. He would be. He would certainly be banned from campus. He already is. So, according to a Clemson philosophy professor, we should all kill ourselves right now, especially those independent cisgender macho types who ride horses and herd cattle and tend to vote Republican. So save the universe and kill a cowboy. That is all. <laughs> When we get back, uh, Nikki Haley is actually amongst her real constituents now because she's amongst the leftists and the neocons in New Hampshire. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD. All right, back to Nikki. I'm getting tired of Nikki, to be honest with you. GS Plumbing Talk Line is 1-800-905-0989. The Common Sense Retirement Planning Text Line is 71307. Nikki Haley is basically 
I mean, when, when Nikki Haley got elected to the uh, General Assembly of South Carolina, she was fairly conservative when you look at what she voted for and the things she stood for. Later, as governor, she would uh, like not support the she, – she, she supported transgender bathrooms, if you go back that far. It's, it's been around for a minute. She would not support it actually being based upon your biological sex. And, you know, she's done some other things that seem sort of interesting. But she has been groomed. A regime-picked candidate. And for a lot of people on both sides of the aisle, this is she is a good replacement for Biden. But then the question becomes, does she have broad appeal to the voting bloc? Now, in Iowa, right, in Iowa, the people that supported Nikki Haley said that in the general election, if she were not the uh, if she were not the nominee, that they would vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Forty three percent of them that supported Nikki Haley. In one Iowa precinct, so many Democrats showed up and requested forms to change their party affiliation so they could participate it, uh, participate in the caucus and vote for Haley. They ran out of forms. And it's shaping up to be the same story in New Hampshire, which holds its primary tomorrow. They also have an open primary, as do we, meaning independents or unaffiliated voters who make up 40% of all registered voters in the state can cast ballots in the GOP primary election. Democrat Party isn't holding a primary there. They got slapped down by the, Demo the Democrat Party. I mean, they, they, they don't want, like what New Hampshire's doing. They wanted to do things differently this year to, so that Joe would look good. But because of this, a lot of Democrats are expected to be voting in this Republican primary. And thousands of New Hampshire Democrats have changed their registration either to be unaffiliated or to Republican, and they're going to vote in this primary. And who will all the non-Republicans be voting for? Well, they're going to vote for Haley. Amongst the people there, 28% of the Republicans support her there versus 53% who said they were Democrats. And among voters who consider themselves left-leaning or moderate, Haley's beating Trump 56 to 27%. <laughs> they also found that a staggering 37% of likely Haley voters say their support isn't so much a vote for Haley, but against Trump. And despite all of this data, the argument they're making is that all of this crossover primary nonsense, which is exactly that, it's, it's nonsense, this would show you how strong she might be in the general election because she appeals to this broad voter base and that her moderate views would expand the GOP tent in November. Haley's been pushing that line. If we get independents, if we get conservative Democrats, that's what the Republican Party should pursue. Well, who are the new voters she's supposedly bringing in to vote Republican in November? Are they going to vote Republican in November? Probably not. Very few of the Democrats planning to vote for Haley next, you know, in, in this primary would choose her, much less Trump, over Biden in a two-way race. And a sizable number of them even admit they're animated by the anti-Trump sentiment, which means they likely support Democrat policy and priority. And they're not coming to this side so much as infiltrating the primary to mess it up. And uh, the, the, the Democrats who are supporting her, are they're not doing it for the same reasons 
that the millions of blue-collar Democrats in the Rust Belt supported Trump in 2016. Back then, the Democrat vote crossover voting in the general election had a lot to do with how different Trump was from the other GOP candidates in addition to the Democrat. He took policy positions opposite, at odds with the Republican uh, primary opponents. And he criticized his Republican primary opponents, and he upended the GOP leadership consensus on a host of issues from the border to trade to foreign policy. He separated himself from the herd. So all the ways it was all the ways that Trump stood in contrast to the Republican establishment and the Democrat establishment that attracted so many disaffected Democrats and disillusioned independents to his candidacy. That's why people who hadn't voted in a presidential election in 30 years came out to vote for him. And that's why he was able to expand the Republican Party's tent by increasing the number of black and Hispanic Americans. And in light of all of that, do you think the same thing's happening with Haley from the from the Democrats? Is she really bringing the disaffected liberals into the GOP? Or is she just an establishment tool? Trying to draw out the primary season, sap the Trump campaign, you know. Biden and the Democrats just want to spin the narrative that there's a sizable cohort of never-Trump GOP voters out there yearning for a return to the moderate social views of the Republican Party before Trump. But there isn't. That's why Trump existed in the first place. The reason Trump took off with the race is because there has never been that desire amongst the voters. And if you take away any Dem take away the Democrat crossover voters and the independents, and Haley's support among actual Republicans is too small to take her seriously. So this past Thursday, she tweeted out a montage of Trump praising her when he was serving his when she was serving his administration as UN ambassador. And then added the comment, why is Donald Trump spending so much time and energy attacking me? Because he knows I'm a threat. Maybe the explanation is simpler than that, though, Nikki. Uh, maybe Trump doesn't see Haley as a threat, but as a stalking horse for Democrats who make up most of her base of support. And the other part of her base is, of course, the globalist elites whose neocon warmongering is something she's down for altogether. The reality of her candidacy in this regard was masterly summed up by John Uroyd, who said, unfortunately for Haley, this week, her real base of political supporters is 3,798 miles away from New Hampshire in Davos, Switzerland, wheels down in its private jets attending the annual self-congratulatory World Economic Forum confab of globalist elites. And then there's, a, you know, the idea that a Republican would appeal to the Democrats with all the things the Democrats have done, it makes her very unappealing to me. You know, if, if they're down for what she what they think she's going to do or not do, uh, that means that there's something not quite right about her as a politician in charge of anything. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. We're, but for those of you that are big fans of Nikki Haley, she's in the middle right now of what her true constituency is. It's not here in South Carolina. It's, it's in New Hampshire. We're going to talk about what became of health care here in the United States. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD.
Savage Bump. I like that one. GS Plumbing Talk Line is one 800 The Common Sense Retirement Planning Text Line is 71307. Everybody's heard of uh, Potumkin Village, right? You've heard of that before. Grigory Potumkin was an 18th century Russian statesman. And one of the uh, Russian empresses, Catherine the Great's many lovers. And uh, Russia, under his leadership in 1783, they took the fertile lands of Crimea away from the Ottoman Empire. And he promised Catherine a huge bounty of food and a grateful populace. So Catherine wanted to see this, right? So he built a facade of a prosperous village and hired people to smile and bow down as Catherine's entourage toured the village. And because it was going so slow, Potumkin's hirelings would pick up the fake village that was behind her and move it forward to where she was passing through the same thing over and over again. And so all Catherine saw was a thriving, you know, Russian populace. She thought the invasion had been a great success. Except for the fact that there was no great wealth out there. There was, you know, and no great agricultural harvest was realized and Russians continued to starve. Washington has produced a Potomkin village called Federal Healthcare. The biggest, the biggest insurer now in the United States is the American government. And uh, over the last 10 years, the seventh, seven largest healthcare stocks have all increased in share price. And over the same time period, the maximum average wait time to see a primary care physician increased from 99 days to 122. So, while they were out there worrying about people that didn't have insurance, they were setting things up to where the people that do have insurance, it takes you longer to get to your doctor now. <laughs> and uh, their, their, their prices are fixed according to contracts with health plans after negotiation with state governments. But they can increase revenue only by signing up more people. The best way to increase profit is by reducing costs or let that let that be read as spending on patients. And this is done by the 3D strategy. Delay, defer, or deny. Thus, the longer people wait for a care, the longer insurers keep pre, uh, premium revenue and the profits rise. They call this inverse relationship the seesaw effect. As the number of insured individuals rises, care falls. When insurance companies insure more people, they deploy the 3D approach, causing more people to wait longer and longer for care, delaying a proper diagnosis like, oh, I don't know, cancer, and uh, you know medical ailments progress and patients' health worsens, ultimately leading to a death by waiting. Patients who die waiting in line for care. Sounds like Canada. So as more Americans are insured, insurance profits go up and patient care falls. And Washington insures 194 million Americans through Medicare, Medicaid, and TRICARE. When the ACA was coming out, 500,000 500, jobs were added to the health care sector under Obamacare. Only 47,000 of those were, were actual doctors, care providers, meaning that 453,000 were non-clinical jobs, people who didn't, you know, they were just administrative. Then you think about the salaries for millions of bureaucrats, administrators, rules writers, regulation compliers, compliance officers, overseers, mandate enforcers. And this is the cost of health care associated with regulations such as the ACA. And that costs $1.76 trillion. 
$716 billion was taken from the Medicare Trust, money intended to pay for hospital care for seniors. And according to the trustees, Medicare will be insolvent by 2028 and will not provide this care. So the ACA was just a money sum that diverted health care spending away from paying for care. In 2023, they expanded $4.6 trillion on its health care system, an amount greater than the entire GDP of Germany, the fourth largest economy on earth. So $2 trillion worth of patient care, Washington is denying to actual care because they're paying that to themselves. So as the federal, as all of that federal insurance goes up, patient care goes down and Americans die. So just like these false buildings that Potumkin put in front of Catherine, that's what this insurance has done. It has put up this false facade that you are being taken care of, that we are only looking out for you. All you've got to do is figure out that whole false building thing. Behind the facade, there is reality. Washington pays itself with health care dollars and Americans with insurance die waiting in line for care. So all of this stuff that you're required to have, don't matter. You're going to be denied. You're going to be delayed. Sort of depressing. But that's okay. Because I'll be back tomorrow. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD, the voice of the Carolinas.